1: The Telegraph. the Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news from NATO summit in Lithuania. We look in more detail at the Ukrainian counteroffensive in the south and around Bakhmut. And I speak to an American listener who welcomed a Ukrainian family over many months last year. Bravery takes you through the most Unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need
2: a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield
0: to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday. The 12th of July, one year and 138 days since the full-scale invasion began, and today I'm joined by our Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, Whitehall correspondent Tony Diver, and senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant. Before we went to Joe and Tony in Vilnius, I covered the latest updates from Ukraine. Hours before President Zelensky met world leaders in Lithuania, Russia launched a wave of kamikaze drone attacks on Kiev and other cities. It's the second attack on the capital in as many days, but the Ukrainian Air Force reported it had shot down 11 of the 15 Iranian-made Shahid drones overnight as air-raid sirens blasted over Kiev and across Ukraine for several hours. Downstream from Kiev, in the city of Cherkassy, two people were sent to hospital with burns after the drone strikes. And in the south, bombing by Russian forces caused multiple fires across Mykolaiv. Michaliev. Mykolaiv's Regional Defence Command wrote on Telegram... Yesterday, on July the 11th, at 1.02 pm, the enemy launched artillery fire on the town of Ochakov in the Ochakov community. As a result, residential buildings were damaged, there was a fire in an outbuilding, the fire was quickly tamed, and there were no injuries. As well as shedding and drone strikes across the country, another Russian general has reportedly been killed, this time, again reportedly, by a British storm shadow missile. Russia's Ministry of Defence has not commented on the alleged death of Lieutenant General Oleg Tsokov, but if it is confirmed, he will be the ninth Russian general to die in the war, and the highest ranking. Petro Andriushchenko, an advisor to the ousted mayor of Mariupol, said that the deputy commander of Russia's southern military district was killed during an attack on occupied Berdyansk. Russian bloggers said that Ukraine used British Storm Shadow missiles in the attack. The Ukrainians have of course been using the Storm Shadows to strike Berdyansk. They're the only missile in its arsenal so far with the range to hit the port town. And finally, we've been speaking on this podcast quite a lot about the prospect of the US supplying Ukraine with cluster munitions. The Kremlin has come out with a response. Today it said it would respond with, quote, countermeasures, unquote, if Ukraine used cluster bombs against its troops. Spokesman Dmitry Peskov told reporters, quote, the potential use of this type of munitions changes the situation. And of course, it would force Russia to take countermeasures. But speaking at the NATO summit, Vladimir Zelensky said Ukraine needed the munitions to defend itself because they were already being used by Russian forces. So those are the brief updates. Joe, can I come to you first? We spoke to you yesterday on the ground in Vilnius. Uh, What stories have you been looking at today?
4: The question over Ukraine's membership and how that is going to proceed is still lingering over the summit. So yesterday, Volodymyr Zelensky branded NATO absurd for denying it immediate entry into the military Alliance, essentially. Instead, the Alliance came up with some sort of a leaf compromise fudge that said that Ukraine will be allowed to join NATO as and when the conditions have been met and allies agree those conditions have been met. So the story kind of prompted a, a lot of a lot of anger about about Zelensky's words he was called it unprecedented absurd he said uh, basically accused in a roundabout way nato of being hesitant and playing into the hands of kind of russia by it, essentially using nato membership as a bargaining tool in any future negotiations <laughs> on peace he's now walking in today he's remarkably changed tone he's a lot happier with it even though he says the promises of security guarantees which the g7 are announcing today can't replace nato membership he recognizes that ukraine is on its way into nato at at some stage after the war it seems like he's been given a bit of a ticking off by some western leaders speaking to ben wallace earlier britain's defense secretary and he, he he said that um some of ukraine's western backers want to see more gratitude and thanks from ukraine for the arms deliveries rather than these huge complaints and in another um there's a report by the washington post uh, that the us kind of delegation was absolutely furious when they they saw uh, the twitter statement by zelensky yesterday and it seems that jake sullivan uh, the white house National security advisor was also kind of built on this idea that Uh, The US mainly wants to show wants uh, Ukraine to show thanks and more gratitude by saying that he says he thinks um, the American people are owed a lot of gratitude for their support they've shown to uh, to Ukraine. Um, And now Zelensky and I've I've been kind of unpicking through his sort public statements has come up with and used the word grateful in at least four of them in his press conference uh, which he gave alongside Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General. He used the word uh, gratitude and. Uh, a fair number of times he deliberately pointed out the american administration the joe biden's presidential administration and kind of lawmakers in congress uh which is just fascinating to see how zelensky may be needed giving a kind of talking down because sometimes while he's got a very very fine line to balance where he's he's got to obviously have these diplomatic chats and secure victories for for his his government and for his country but he's also got to play to his own electorate essentially he he when this war is over will face an election and he wants to he wants to fight to be re-elected so he needs to make sure that he's showing that he's fighting for them when he's overseas uh, which is fascinating um that's kind of the first half of the day it's uh, at the moment the ukraine nato council which is essentially a bit of a formalizing ukraine and nato's not al- alliance because they're not members but partnership are but meeting and they're discussing everything from that membership process to non-military aid and the various other levels of support. The uh, G7 governments, and I've actually gotten hold of a copy. It might have been released since, but I had it just before that of the G7 leader's statement that they'll give on, on these security guarantees, these Israel style security guarantees that they've signed into play or signing into play for Ukraine. And, um, and uh, I'll read I'll read the intro and it's so we, leaders of the group of seven, reaffirm our unwavering commitment to the strategic objective of a free, independent, democratic and sovereign Ukraine with its internationally recognized borders, capable of defending itself and deterring future aggression. It goes on to say that we uh, affirm that the security of Ukraine is integral for the security of the Euro Atlantic region, so basically saying, recognizing that Ukraine has done a lot to sort of Whittle down Russia's army and prove that essentially Russia isn't as scary a monster as possible, as it has suggested. And then we go down it kind of, uh, cause I'm not going to read the whole statement. Cause it just requires a lot of reading. Um, we go down and we flesh out what it's going to involve. And it says they're going to ensure a sustainable force for Ukraine capable of defending itself now and in the future. And that's going to include air defense, artillery, long range fires, armored vehicles. Uh, land, sea, and air equipment. So that referring to essentially the F-16s, there's various naval assets that could be handed over eventually. So that's that's donations, that's gifts. And then one of the other big areas they're going to, the West is going to support and further develop Ukraine's defense industry. So there's talk of, for instance, um, factories potentially being set up that are currently making weapons, for Ukraine outside of Ukraine, but potentially being set up in the country. And then basically build them a base so they can build the equipment they need to defend themselves. It's going to have training exercises for Ukrainian forces, whether it be like Britain's operation Interflex outside of Ukraine, but there's talk of these then, as the war kind of ends, that large-scale training missions can be launched inside Ukraine. And Ben Wallace earlier, as he was talking to reporters on the sidelines of the summit, said that Britain could have more troops in Ukraine after the war than it's ever had before. And if you look back over the last decades or so, we've had Operation Orbital, which was a Ukrainian training mission to bring kind of one of those first ideas of bringing Ukraine's military up to NATO standard. Then they have intelligence sharing and cooperation on that and then extra support to cyber defense, security and resilience, basically looking at making sure Ukraine cannot be hacked by Russia. And I will stop there. That's a kind of a brief, probably too long overview of what, what we've seen this morning.
1: Thank you very much, Joe. Tony Diver, a Whitehall correspondent, can we come to you? You've been travelling with Rishi Sunak and the British contingent to the NATO summit in Vilnius. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen and your impressions of the the bilat, the meeting between Zelensky and Sunak today?
3: Hi, everyone. Yeah, that's right. I flew over with the Prime Minister yesterday morning. He's had a pretty busy schedule since then, actually. He's held a number of bilats with uh, with different leaders. He's spoken to Norway, met President Erdogan. But the most important one as far as the UK is concerned, was that bilap meeting that he had just a few hours ago with with President Zelensky. It was quite interesting, actually, to watch some of the mood music in the room. And if you look at, there were some journalists who were allowed in to do a bit of filming at the beginning. You can see the two men greet each other quite warmly. They sit down. And then one of the first things that Sunak says to Zelensky is, um, should, we just, should we just talk just the two of us? And then everyone else kind of files out of the room and they, and they have a private chat. And I thought that was quite interesting. It's not unheard of in terms of bilateral meetings to take place kind of behind closed doors. But I mean, it does suggest at least that number 10 wants to portray a sense of warmness between the two men. And clearly, the UK is positioning itself as the closest friend that Ukraine has in the West. And I think we saw a little bit more of that today. Uh, In terms of what was discussed, I think it's fairly predictable stuff. I mean, of course, they discussed uh, increased support for Ukraine from the UK, and in the in the readout that we've had from Downing Street, it does say that the the Prime Minister welcomed the fact that the map requirement for Ukraine had now been removed. I know this is something we've talked about before, but the map is the the membership action plan that prospective NATO members uh, have to kind of go through. It's a series of diplomatic economic and and political hoops that countries have to jump through in order that they can be given NATO membership. And a big part of the lead up to this summit was all about whether or not those MAP requirements would be removed, which essentially allows Ukraine's membership of NATO to be fast tracked or the requirements placed on them to be less stringent than they normally would be. And we know that behind the scenes, the UK had been pushing very hard for that both James Cleverly and Ben Wallace have said publicly before the summit that they wanted those MAP requirements to be taken away. And we know that kind of in private diplomatic meetings that were happening behind the scenes over the weekend, uh, the US and Germany, who were slightly more resistant to that idea, had been basically gradually won over by a combination of the UK and some of those Eastern European states who were generally a bit more hawkish about Ukraine's membership of NATO. So interesting there that, the, the, you know, Downing Street is pointing out explicitly that the UK is kind of celebrating what is basically a bit of a diplomatic win in that, in that bilateral, and and Downing Street described that meeting as uh, as a place where the two men marked a, a new high point in support from the international community, and and they say that Mr. Sunak said to Mr. Zelensky that uh, it would give Ukraine an even greater level of endurance against Russian aggression. So I think that that's pretty interesting, and I think you know we can see kind of a in a way a bit of a a bit of a contrast between the words of Rishi Sunak and the words of Ben Wallace, which joe mentioned earlier i mean the rishi has always been sort of incredibly forthright about you know the uk's enduring support when we had a chat with him on the on the plane on the way over yesterday. He said that Vladimir Putin needs to know that the, the West can't be waited out and that the West will be around for as long as the war is going on. In other words, saying to the Russians, you know, don't expect that you can kind of besiege Ukraine and, and eventually the states and, and other Western allies will lose interest. They're basically saying, you know, we're, we're still going to be here. Whereas on the other hand, you have Ben Wallace saying actually Ukraine needs to be a little bit more grateful for some of the support we have given, particularly as British politicians have to try and sell that domestically. So, um, so yeah. I mean, I think from a from a UK point of view, this has been a very productive summit. Downing Street's basically got what it wanted out of this, which is to continue to position the UK as as one of the greatest friends that. Ukraine has, uh, and equally its diplomatic objectives in terms of those MAP requirements and more support, both through NATO and through the G7, which Jay mentioned earlier, they've both been achieved. So I suspect when we fly home later today on the PM's jet from just outside Vilnius, where I am now, he'll be pretty pleased. In fact, he's going straight back, straight back to Downing Street, where he's hosting a barbecue for Conservative MPs. So perhaps he'll um, perhaps he'll kick back with a with an orange juice or something and uh, and and reflects on basically a pretty successful couple of days.
1: Tony, can I ask you just very quickly, give our listeners a sense of what it's like to be on those flights? I mean, we say, I'm seeing the picture of the piece you wrote for The Telegraph yesterday. and The Prime Minister is there sort of hold, holding forth and he's surrounded by a pack of journalists. All their phones are on the table in front of him to, to catch what he's saying. How do you find the sort of right questions to ask? How do you try and sort of position what you're trying to find out different to, to, to everybody else in the travelling press pack? What, what's the atmosphere like?
3: Well, it's a strange thing to do, actually, this, because, I mean, obviously, for the majority of the flight, it's two and a half hours from London to Vilnius, for the majority of the flight, the Prime Minister is not stood around with a press pack, and he has a kind of separate section of the plane right up the front. I mean, if you want to try and imagine what the plane is like, it's an RAF Voyager, but it essentially looks like the inside of a pretty big passenger jet, you know, the sort of jet you'd fly transatlantically perhaps with with three rows of seats. And then right at the front of the plane you've got a little business class section where the Prime Minister sits with his closest advisors. You've got you've got John Bew, for instance, the foreign affairs advisor and, and various of his other kind of closest aides. And then there's a big middle section which contains a series of other advisors, civil servants and and the various other people that number ten is bringing with them. And then at the back in the steerage you've got you've got the journalists who are all kind of crammed in cheek by jowl. In terms of the way the questions are decided, there is is a kind of pre-huddle huddle where all the journalists get together. We decide what stuff in total we want to get out of the, the huddle. It's not very often that you get direct Facetime with the prime minister well as whatever you want. So uh, the questions are kind of divvied up. We go through the topics that everyone wants to speak about. So yesterday there were lots of questions about the economy, about the public pay review, which is going on and, and could be announced later this week, questions about the, the handling of the scandal of the BBC, and then, of course, the NATO conference and, and the support the UK is giving to Ukraine. So those things are parceled up. To different journalists, everyone gets one question and then you know the Prime Minister stands and, and answers those questions and then heads back up to the front of the plane to, to go and relax. But I have to say he seemed in pretty good spirits yesterday. He seemed pretty pleased about, about being there and he was quite happy to answer our questions.
1: Thank you very much, Tony. Just one more question from me. You mentioned the, the sort of the closeness and the, the relationship between Zelensky and Sunak. I, I wanted to ask, in your view, how how is that developing? We know the the closeness and the the strength of the relationship that Boris Johnson and Vladimir Zelensky shared. Do you, is is Sunak? Do you think sort of actively trying to replicate that, or is he doing it in his, in his own way? What, what do you make of their of their emerging sort of their emerging friendship, maybe their their alliance?
3: Well, it's certainly true that that Sunak and Johnson have quite different approaches to the public persona of the prime minister. I mean, we know Boris Johnson's preferred method was a kind of slightly more clubbable prime minister, someone who was just cracking jokes. Being very friendly, and 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 we saw that between the two men, particularly when Boris Johnson went over to Kyiv and walked around with Zelensky there, and you saw a real kind of closeness between them. I think Sunak takes a slightly more traditional diplomatic prime minister approach. He likes everything to be very kind of neat, very scripted, very careful. But I think there was genuine warm- warmth between them. If you look at the um, look at the footage of the meeting in that bilateral earlier today, and and certainly if you look as Jay mentioned at what. Zelensky said in his tweet after that meeting, it was full of gratitude for the UK, for the military support that's been given, for the diplomatic support in the lead up to this summit. And, you know, I, I think, I think number 10 isn't overstating it when they do describe the UK as one of Ukraine's closest allies. And I, I think that came through.
1: Well, thank you very much, Tony. Best of luck with the rest of the day. Well, actually, Tony and Joe, and maybe Roland as well, can I ask you all, obviously, this question about how ben wallace's remarks there about how they'd want ukraine to show more gratitude for the support they'd already had from the west to what extent do you think this is sort of just noise diplomatic noise um which has come from countries and states trying to position themselves best ahead of the summit and now as you said joe the sort of the everybody's a lot more positive today now the statements and and everything is out or or does it show some really genuine anger and and, an upset between the different partners i mean or or is it a bit of both what what do you make of that
2: Hello. Should I say that? Th- these are quite long running tensions, to be honest. I mean, I've I've had conversations with Western officials going back, I mean, deep into 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 last year. So kind of throughout the war, you it is not been unusual to hear this, you know, one or two sentences when you're speaking to someone along the lines of or, or to the effect of they come up, they give us a shopping list and they kind of demand everything and they never explain why they want it and they kind of so this 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 sense that you know the Ukrainians are always banging the table and demanding stuff um, I think there has long been a certain degree of tension and irritation amongst some western officials about that I mean I, and I think so when I, when I saw the kind of comments Zelensky basically exploding in a rant on Twitter yesterday and then you know the comments from, from Ben Wallace this morning and, and also Jake Sullivan I kind of see that in that context, that this is a kind of, yeah, what's the metaphor I'd look for? If you've got a flatmate who's always drinking your milk or something, you know, it's an irritation that that has maybe been long building and has maybe come out in the open. I wouldn't say it's like a massive rift or, or that it translates into genuine resentment and anger. But I definitely think this has been a theme
1: throughout the war. Thanks, Roland. Joe Barnes, what do you make of it?
4: Yeah, Roland's Ron, like 100% correct there. It's, it's not a genuine, like, full-scale diplomatic meltdown. It's not going to be an end of sort of Western support for Ukraine. But it is it is constantly been niggling there. Uh, so ben Wallace told us quite an amusing story earlier. He said that he once drove 11 hours to Ukraine for a meeting with kind of his, like, with the military guys there. And on, on arrival, literally, as he stepped up the car, he was instantly handed a shopping list. And he had to tell them, and I... I "Quote: I'm not Amazon." So, and, and Ben Wallace has explained this, and other people have explained this, and said, "Look, they understand why Ukraine's doing this. They, they are basically they they want to kind of always push the the barriers and push the the borders of what they're being given because that's how that's how they're going to win win this war." Wallace said that, uh, uh, like while like Britain doesn't have that complaint, it doesn't it doesn't mind. There are people in America, and he didn't single out Joe Biden or the presidential of administration, but he did mention sort of people on the lawmakers on the Hill, so Congress and Senate and stuff, who are probably a little bit more reticent and a little bit less likely to support the full backing of Ukraine uh, as the election uh, approaches there. So yeah, not a, not not a, not a rift, but there, there have been kind of moments, and I think Joe Biden has been reported has always been a bit tetchy with Zelensky at times. There was one one billion dollar package that was agreed and they traditionally hold a phone call to agree these packages between the two leaders and as soon as they basically said oh great we've got this one billion it's coming it's coming your way Zelensky then said oh can we have this and that and that wound up Joe Biden he, or the US president reported to have suggested that the Zelensky should show the American people a bit more gratitude so they, these, these have been kind of comments that have been lingering yeah well into sort of the previous year but they haven't actually ever bubbled over and led to a sort of a a breakdown which has stopped Ukraine from getting what it asked for, say. But Zelensky also knows there's an element of he constantly asks for things. So he asked for tanks, for instance, and he really banged at that door, banged at that door, banged at that door, going tanks, tanks, tanks. What did he eventually get? Tanks. He has been doing that on long-range weapons. What did he get? He's Britain sent storm shadows. France has sent its version of the same weapon, the scalp. And you've got America, again, reportedly considering the attack system. F-16s is the same story. So it's this is, like, Zelensky is essentially like a shark swimming around the uh, waters around NATO leaders, constantly nibbling at them, knowing that he's going to carry on getting more and more and more. And it's a tactic that's worked for him, and I think, I think most people inside
1: NATO. Are- Very much. Joe, just before we move on from this, obviously we've, t- oh, sorry, Tony, would you like to come in?
3: Well, I was just going to say briefly, I think I mean, the other two covered it both very well, but I think this kind of the way to think about it is there's two things going on here. You've got the kind of, at the diplomatic level, you've got the Ukrainians will always kick off ahead of an international summit like this because it adds political pressure to to other Western leaders. And, you know, clearly it works, as Jay points out, if they've got what they've asked for. And then we have seen this before with Zelensky kind of throwing his toys out the pram just before a summit like this in order to kind of make the point that the West needs to be doing as much as it can. And that's successful. But then you've also got domestic factors at play. You've got Zelensky thinking about re-election. You've got Zelensky thinking about his own personal profile back in Ukraine. Um, and then you've got Western leaders who perhaps are slightly nervous about what the public and, and indeed their legislative bodies think about some of this support. And so... There's a sort of dance which plays out in summits like this, where both sides are thinking both about how they can get what they want from each other and and also how they can continue to have the backing of, of people back at home. And I think it's not a major crisis. It's not even a crisis in the relations between Ukraine and the West. Uh, it's just kind of how the game is
1: played. Thanks very much, Tony. Just before we move on, could we, I think we've done a very good job exploring the, the sort of western side of this. Roland or Joe, would you speak a little bit about how the Ukrainians see this? I mean, it must be a source of huge frustration to have to bang the drum, ask continuously for things and then eventually get them, but know that, well, it could have just been decided init- uh, you know, straight away if that's the case. What, what do the Ukrainians make of this?
2: The way they've always put it to me is that, look, every single thing we've asked for, the answer, the first answer was always no. From from every single weapon system that you can imagine, from from the smallest and least significant, and they've put in a huge amount of diplomatic legwork into into each one, and they kind of they know which mountains they're going to climb next. So just as the the, the, the tanks were finally released at the beginning of this year, I was in Kiev and I had a chat with a diplomat, and he said, "Yeah, that was a long one. Now the next uh, the next mountain is fighter jets," and he was very quietly confident that he's exhausted i mean he's absolutely exhausted but he 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 was absolutely dead certain they were eventually going to get them but it's what goes along with that is this kind of frustration they they have a very good the diplomatic team i think is very very good and and they they understand they've got to they've got to play these games and things aren't instant and it's their job to to do this slog but there's definitely a sense of like look we know eventually you're going to agree to do this so just why don't you do it now In a way. And I think I think part of that strategy may also be um, kind of over over requesting, requesting things you know you're maybe not gonna get, but it it kind of shifts the conversation forward and it and it and it keeps it going. I mean my my last kind of conversation about this, I got the impression that Ukrainians feel that every single weapon system has been unlocked now. So they've got Western tanks, they've got they're getting Western fighter jets, not as soon as they'd like. But they're getting them. They've got long-range missiles. Storm Shadow fills that gap, but there's not enough Storm Shadow, which is why they're still pushing the Americans. There's still a lot of lobbying behind the behind the um, behind the scenes in the back rooms, stuff that we don't see. The Ukrainians are still pushing the Ukrainians on the the, the sorry, the so the, the Ukrainians are still pushing the Americans on the Atacams. But the 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 big thing now is about sustainability of munitions and. As far as I understand, that's that's now that mountain that Ukrainian diplomats have put in in front of themselves. That's what we've got to secure. It's about making sure that we're going to have the ammo and the maintenance to keep these weapon systems operating in the field. And I think, you know, that that throws some light on the recent announcement of the Americans that we're going to supply these these cluster weapons. What are they? Their munitions? That's the that I think is the kind of that's how the Ukrainians look at it. And again, I don't think there's any kind of, I think the frustrations that you've seen here are fairly genuine, but I think Tony's right to say, it. in a way, the are always kind of conscious of your, the politicians, especially are, are conscious of your domestic constituency and what is expected of you. What's, you know, what's expected of you back home. And that also, if I may, just on, on this kind of question of NATO you know, will we get a NATO invitation, things like that. I kind of put it in the same box. I kind of of feel like there's obvious anger and frustration. The Ukrainians are very clear that they wanted more of a commitment on on a pathway to membership than they got yesterday. Um, But I also feel like there's, they think they're in the same kind of place. It's like the F-16s, it's like the tanks, it's baby steps, but eventually they'll get there. And I am pretty sure there are already kind of conversations going on about okay, well, there's not an invitation now, but when when will we get an announcement about an invitation? Is there another time? Maybe next year, maybe after the American election, stuff like that. So they'll be looking, they'll be looking forward and thinking about the coming months and years as well.
1: Well, thank you very much, Roland, Tony, and Joe for all of that. Let's move away from Filnius. And Roland, if I could stay with you, um, you've been looking a little bit into the incredibly dense fog of war surrounding the. A Ukrainian assaults on Bakhmut. The title of the piece you've written for the Telegraph is Is Russia really, quote, caught in a trap, end quote, in Bakhmut? Why did you want to look at this and what do you think you found so far? Um, I think
2: it's partly because there's two main counteroffensive directions, or two main areas where the Ukrainians are carrying out counteroffensive operations. One is in the south on that very, very long front, several areas along that long southern front in Zaporizhia going into the going to, uh, Donetsk region. And that's where we've we've kind of focused our attention, because that's the big push, right? The big push to get to the Sea of Azov and, and cut the land corridor. But they're also, since before that began, they began pushing back in Bakhmut. And also, they seem, they seem very keen to talk about that at the moment. You're not getting much from the Ukrainians about the specifics of what's going on in the South. But they seem to feel like they're making enough progress to brag a little bit about what's going on about Bakhmut. So the current situation, as far as we can tell, all the usual caveats, incredibly thick um, fog of war, um, is that, you know, over the past, it's about two months since the Ukrainians started their counter-offensive operations around there. They're not going for the city itself. They're going to the north, uh, kind of northwestern edge and the southwestern edge of Bakhmut. So the Ukrainians heading, driving northeastwards and southeastwards. Trying to push back those two prongs, these two pinches that the Russians threw around the city, and, and nearly but never quite failed to close. But there's the logic of that. Eventually, perhaps, what well, the logic is simple: well, you push back the you push back the Russians and you prevent an encirclement. But but perhaps the implication is further down the line. Eventually, it turns into a counter encirclement, and suddenly the Ukrainians are pushing their own prongs around the flanks of Bakhmut. And we had a statement, uh, was it yesterday, the day before, from uh, Alexander Silsky, the commander of the Ukrainian ground forces, who seems to be in charge around Bakhmut, saying, the Russians are caught in a trap, and we've got fire control over Bakhmut. Uh, a little bit more detail on that from Hanna Malia, the Ukrainian deputy defense minister, who's effectively the, the spokeswoman for the ministry, saying, Ukraine has managed to recapture high ground, which means they now have fire control on the entrances and exits of of Bakhmut and the implication of that statement is that the Russians who spent eight to nine months trying to capture the city, finally captured it, now they're trapped, what a disaster for them. Now, how far does that match up with what we actually know about what's going on on the ground? It, difficult to tell. I mean, what we know is that the, the Ukrainian counter-defense on the southern side of this flank has reached a place called Klishivka, which is a, a village that, I mean, it effectively sits in a little bit of a valley, but it's it's surrounded by quite a high plateau, and that plateau gives you a good view of Bakhmut itself. It's it's a commanding height, and so some people are talking about how Klishivka could be a key to Bakhmut and would make the the Russian positions on that side of the city untenable, and we've had a. We had some reports this morning from the Ukrainians saying that they've made some progress at two villages just directly south of Klishivka, so on the same the same kind of theatre of operations, a place called Andriivka and Kodyumivka. And On the northern side, they've succeeded in pushing back towards the back suburbs of Khomara, uh, this place called Yahidnya. Um So the Ukrainians definitely have momentum, but I'm a little bit sceptical about this claim of fire control. I mean, fire control for a start, what does it mean? It means that you know, you've got, you've got your guns within range of the roads, you're able to hit the roads and hit them effectively, but that's not the same as closing a road. I mean, the Russians had fire control of the the last supply roads into Bakhmut for quite a while when, you know, in the last stages of the battle. Um, that didn't stop Ukrainian drivers from driving that road at very high speed. It didn't stop them from getting through. So just being able to hit roads doesn't, it's not the same as saying it's impossible to get in or out. And the other thing is the Ukrainians are, They're a long way from actually reversing the kind of prongs, putting their own kind of jaws around Bakhmut and and surrounding the Russians in there. And I I think they're kind of the implication of the statements that came out was that that's kind of imminent. Um, I think that's a bit premature. I think that's a little bit of uh, if they were journalists, I'd say they're using a, a bit of license there. But what's what's certainly clear is it's a, it's a part of the front where the Ukrainians feel they have some momentum. But when we say momentum, I mean, they're, they're definitely gaining ground faster than the Russians took it originally. But we're only talking about an advance over the past three months. I mean, on the south, I kind of measured it on the map, you're looking at an advance of about three miles, three and a half miles over the course of about two months, I think. So these are not these are not huge distances. This is still kind of grueling back and forth. Short gains followed by the rapid counter attacks, um, that kind of thing.
1: Before we go to our final thoughts, Roland, could you just talk a little bit about why you think about the potential reasons why the counter offensive, especially in this region, is moving so slowly? I mean, it's, it's obviously very, we, well, I think we knew it would be very, very different from what we saw last year, at the end of last year. But I mean, what are you hearing about the sort of, as, as you described it, the, the, the relatively slow progress?
2: I mean, like, this this kind of fighting is slow for, for a number of reasons one of the reasons is that neither side really has overwhelming neither side has the kind of overwhelming concentration of force and ability that you know that i suppose like western powers have become accustomed to using the invasion of iraq for example or something like that they don't have their superiority for example the the, the fields, the, the extensive defensive works here and in the south. Landmines are a really serious problem for vehicles and men going forward. And the landscape, you'll have seen it on the video, so it's basically the landscape of this part of Ukraine is very wide rolling fields, huge scale. And between those fields, rather like in English countryside, you might have like some quaint hedges. Generally, between these enormous fields, you have these tree lines. Those tree lines are the kind of sometimes they call them forest strips, not very wide at all, kind of maybe 20 feet across, 20, 30 feet across, but it's the only cover anywhere. So everyone kind of digs into these tree lines because it's the only cover you've got. Of course, everybody knows you're dug in there. So you'll have have an assault trying to root the enemy out of a tree line, get your own guys in there. And then of course, soon you'll be hit. Once you're in there, you'll be hit by the enemy artillery and a counterattack will be put in. And then it's up to you to try and hold on to that to that tree line or that position and it will go back and forth back and forth and in the south i mean i was talking to people about the the great big push in the south which is meant to eventually hopefully reach the the sea of azov cut the land corridor and so on where where it's been really really difficult and whether you where the the russians have really dug in i mean it was so obvious that that was the logical place for the Ukrainians to strike. And it took so long to get it going. The Russians, well, the Russians basically didn't waste their time. So they've dug in heavily. They've reinforced their trenches. They've they've sown minefields much more thickly than they would under their normal kind of doctrine. If you open a Russian military textbook and it would say X number of mines per 100 square meters or something, well, they're just, as we understand, they're just ignoring that and putting as many mines as they can in anywhere, which is difficult. There's also things like... So one, one thing you've always seen in Ukraine are these tank scrapes. So usually, maybe in a tree line or something like that, tanks will be kind of dug into these, well, it, it's a scrape, kind of a like imagine a driveway with a, it's dug into the ground, and you roll your tank in there, it means you can only see the turret kind of pops up. It's a nice defensive position from which you can, only the turret's visible and, and it's useful when you're using a tank in a defensive role. The Russians, we understand, have put, concrete roofs over these things and camouflage them very well and, and, and put them into the into the tree lines which makes it even more difficult to to stop the tanks so you know we, we've all seen those very those videos that both sides put out of their you know little drones dropping a grenade through a tank hatch and all of the ammunition inside cooks off and so on well there's no way you're doing that if the tank has got a roof on it kind of thing and it also makes it more difficult for them to find but there's just i don't know i've been talking a long time but look i think the metaphor that I came up with for myself, the counteroffensive in the South is to think about climate change It's very <laughs> the climate change. It's this very slow incremental process where, you know, we, we, we have a hot summer and then we have a cold day. And then people say, oh, where's your climate change now? It's raining. But that's not the point. It's a kind of it's a gradual, gradual thing. And eventually the, the Ukrainian objective is to, to cover this 20, 30 kilometers in certain places to these main Russian defensive lines. Everything until they get to those defensive lines is build up. When they puncture those defensive lines, that's success. And how far they're able to break through and get beyond the defensive lines once that's achieved, that's the measure of how big the success um, is going to be. So you're waiting for this this tipping point. And at the moment, they're not yet there yet. I'm not actually entirely clear how close they are to it, but that's that's what they're driving towards.
1: Thank you very much, Roland, uh, and thank you, Tony, and Joe. Let's go to then to our final thoughts. Uh, Joe, you're in Vilnius, obviously. Uh, would you like to sort of sum up what you've seen in the last two days, uh, or what will you be doing next?
4: Uh, yeah, let's sum up. Let's start Vilnius. It's been quite an incredible summit for many sort of reasons, and it, it it really does bookend Ukraine's Western transformation. There was reports in the first days of the war that. Zelensky was willing to sign some sort of document with Russia that would see it commit to not joining NATO, and now we have a President Zelensky who has like kind of shouted down the roof when he wasn't allowed to join NATO. This is, and it's uh, you speak to Western officials, politicians, and diplomats, and they all they all kind of say the same thing that what Vladimir Putin has done, and it's the sort of his massive failure and. One of of one of these kind of stated war aims is to stop the expansion of NATO on its borders. But yesterday, or sorry, day before yesterday, Turkey agreed to let Sweden in, which adds another sort of vast border and helps NATO basically take complete tro- c- control of the Baltic Sea. You've got a, 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 look while Zelensky and other sort of these like Eastern allies, they understand that. They couldn't, they, Ukraine couldn't join NATO while the war's going on, because that would essentially tr- become a trigger for Article 5, the mutual defence clause, and it would drag NATO countries into a full-fledged ground war with Russia. He's got something, that while it is only diplomatic language, but it is a, a, a genuine path into into NATO, into, into the West. And he's, he's secured something that kind of, what was it, 16, 17 months ago, we would have thought would be completely ridiculous when we were when we were thinking or say some people were thinking that ukraine would be steamrolled in three days and the russian flag would be put up over kiev putin would be able to walk into sort of adulation like now we've got a country that's defended itself it's on the attack and it's it's uh, yeah it's on the verge of joining a joining the a, a main tool that was put together to basically fight the soviet union so yeah it's quite a remarkable transformation that's i think it's been absolutely fascinating to be here and i'm sure we'll have more kind of fascinating months and years ahead as ukraine pushes to overcome those final hurdles towards
1: membership well thank you very much for joining us from vilnius joe it's hugely appreciated by all of us for the final thoughts today though let's go to roland oliphant
2: hello yeah i mean i'm a bit more positive i think about about the outcome of the of the conference than i was yesterday i think um there's real tangible benefit, obviously, to the, the practical um, support that, that, that Ukraine is getting, um, and I do have a sense that it's it's partly a bit like the F-16s and, and the tanks and things like that um, that that they will get there. Um, but, but on the other hand, you know, don't don't expect this anxiety to go away. There's, they're meant to have dropped the membership action plan, but there are now these these conditions. That Ukraine is meant to implement before it gets in. So I I do feel that the Ukrainians are perfectly justified in fearing a repetition of 2008 when there was, you know, what what Dmitry Kolev, their foreign minister, calls a a false promise to, a promise to let them in one day that no one really agreed to keep. And I've, I've heard stories of kind of certain European diplomats from certain European countries basically telling their Ukrainian colleagues after that, or you don't expect us actually to do this, do you? So that's, that's my thought.
1: Recently, I spoke with Justin, an American listener who wrote to us about his experiences welcoming a Ukrainian family to the US after the start of the full-scale invasion last year. It was a really fascinating chat and really interesting to hear what life is like for both the host family and the guests. Thank you so much, Justin, for getting in touch and for your kindness towards people in their hour of need. Here is our conversation. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Justin. Can you talk to us first of all about why you wanted to host Ukrainian refugees in your home in the US?
0: We were watching the news with everything going on and it was just a random thought. We wanted to do it. We really didn't have any driving factor behind anything other than we see how horrible this war is, how stupid it is, you know, all these people that are being displaced So we figured, you know, we have space in our home. Let's offer it up to somebody if they're interested in coming over. So after I talked with my wife first, (laughs) there's a website called welcome.us and it kind of makes connections between us and Ukrainian families that were interested. So I'd signed up on that website. And once they released the first batch of Ukrainians that had signed up on the website, I was kind of inundated with a lot of different people contacting us. And the one that had jumped out to us was a family that the wife was a teacher, just like my wife. They had twin girls that were the same age as my twin boys. Um, and the husband had had been an entrepreneur like I am. And so it was kind of like, oh, there are Ukrainian doppelgangers. So let's go ahead and start chatting with them. And so we we talked with them for about a week to two weeks and You know, when they would tell us, oh, we have to go down to the basement right now, there's another air raid siren. We just said, you know what? Enough of this. Come come live with us. I was actually really amazed by the the U.S.'s bureaucratic process. And it literally took a day from the time that I filled out all of the paperwork online. They responded within hours saying, "Okay, yes, you are approved to bring this family over. They send paperwork to them. They filled it out right away, and so in about a 24-hour time period, they had authorization to come to the U.S.
1: So can you tell us a little bit about where the family that stayed with you are from? And you mentioned um, one of them's a teacher, they twin girls. Um, what else did you learn about them?
0: So they're from Sumi, right at the beginning of the war. They're one of the first cities next to the border where the Russians came in. very first day of the war, from their flat, they could see, you know, tanks rolling into the city, and... Um, during that time they were under quasi russian occupation the russians never really got into the center of the city where they live they had the opportunity to leave at one point you know when there were corridors open for people to escape and they had gotten in their car and were deciding to do it and then they decided no and got back in their car again they they couldn't really explain why they they didn't leave more of the the fear of the unknown maybe and so they stayed through that period until you know, the Russians were were fought back again. And then the shelling continued. Um, you know, you guys do a great job reporting on everything. You're the podcast that I listen to all the time. I feel you have very comprehensive reporting on the whole situation, more than what, like, American reporting has on it here. And you still can't comment on everything, though, because there's just too much stuff that's happening. In, in Sumi, where they live... Shelling happens every single day, even though it's not on the front lines and it's not really something big. You know, they have their own personal uh, chat group in the city that lets people know about the air raid sirens and things that are going on. And so it'll be, oh, today, uh, a barn with 100 horses was was mortared. And so citizens were out there trying to get the horses out of the barn. And another day, oh, our bus stop was destroyed. You know, just random stuff. There's there's five Russian soldiers on the other side. They're just randomly shooting mortars over at the town every day just to just to really enact terror on the people and so that was that constant nonstop. even though we're not on the front lines anymore we're still fearful for our children's lives that's when they kind of decided you know what you guys need to leave unfortunately you know their the husband and father couldn't leave he needed to stay but for for the mom and the the two daughters it it was time to go
1: what were the first few weeks like hosting them
0: I tried to prep as much as possible for them before they got here. I looked into all the different programs that I could get them into. I contacted charities. I contacted anybody that I could think of to try and set them up for success as soon as they got here. You know, they lived with us in the house. We had uh, we built our house with two master bedrooms for our twin boys since they stay in the same bedroom. So we actually moved them out to the guest room, and that gave uh, them kind of their own little mini apartment um, for them to live. So they had their own space where they could get away from us if they wanted to. And, uh, the first two weeks, it was really the mother and I spending all day every day on paperwork. That's where the bureaucratic process got slow so much to do, to be able to get them to, uh, be able to work. For example, you have to apply for a work permit when she got here, since she's not a citizen that took a month just for her to be able to have the opportunity to be able to work. And at that time, I had to pay $400 just for the processing fee. We applied for her health care here. That is one thing that the uh, refugees are afforded is one year of free government Medicaid. Getting it was insanely difficult for some reason. Um, We went through the online process, and after two months, they declined her. And we couldn't get a great reason why. The only reason they said is, well, we couldn't prove that you're actually here legally, Um, which the only proof that we had through bringing them over in this process is her uh, authorized stamp on her passport that says that she's here as a uh, Ukrainian parolee for two years. And I had to keep taking time off of work and going to one of the actual facilities and arguing with people. And saying, like, look, like she's here. She's here legally through a program. I contacted Homeland Security and several other different departments saying, hey, am I missing a paper that I'm supposed to have from you guys that says that they're authorized to be here? And the answer was no. It's just her passport, was the only documentation that she had. Um, and so eventually, six months after they arrived, they finally got healthcare.
1: What was it like socially for the family and for the children arriving in America? Did they find it easy to make friends um, or was it was, it, was it a little harder than perhaps you guys thought?
0: They had a little bit of a tough time here and there, but, you know, they did make friends. The girls play tennis. Um, the father is a tennis pro. We signed them up for a tennis program here and then a local really nice tennis club uh, actually gave them a scholarship so that they could come and train. And so they made friends with, with girls over at tennis. The language barrier was always a little bit of a, a difficulty. Uh, the mother taught English in Ukraine, so her English, I would rate it an 80 out of 100. Her biggest difficulty was probably uh, English language idioms. You know, um, things that you actually have to, to know. It's not something that you can define, like Bobby feels blue. And she's like, why does he feel a color? I don't understand that. So there's a, a lot of those type of things.
1: When, when you look back on the family stay with you, what, what are the sort of the most positive moments that stand out for you? What, what are the memories you'll, you'll go back to?
0: Oh, boy. I mean, there's so many. They received several people, gave them $1,000 randomly, people that we didn't even know. We had had a couple of local news agencies put out a, a local news article on, on the family being here, and we had a, a fundraiser set up, and we just had random people donate an incredible amount of money to them, which was amazing. So uh, that was interesting. The mother worked for one of my businesses. I had you know, thrown that out there for her if she wanted to work for me rather than some stranger. We spent all day every day together, the two of us. And so we, we formed an amazing bond. She's like my sister. We became so close that even though they've now returned to Ukraine, we're, we're family and we communicate weekly.
1: Why did they go back and w- what was saying goodbye like?
0: They went back because of missing her husband, the girl's father, and also feeling that they were in a state of limbo because they didn't know if they started to really progress in their life here if they would ever see him again. When they lived with us, the agreement was that we would pay for your, your food, we'd provide you with housing, There's really nothing that they had to pay for. And so all of the time that she worked, she just saved up her money. And so that idea was to get them to a a secure enough place where then they could go and rent an apartment or buy a home and get a car and get out on their own. And so after six months of being here, it was really a a decision-making point for them on like, okay, do we take this money and start a life here or do we go home? and so missing her husband was was a big one and so they decided to go back but they went back with a plan saying that unlike last time we're going to keep suitcases packed in the car if the war comes to our doorstep again in a heavy more than you know what it already is then they're immediately going to get in the car and drive to towards the polish border where it's safer
1: you said that you stay in touch around once a week. What, what news do you hear from them at the moment?
0: We try to focus on the light stuff, just them getting back to their lives at home. The mother got a job at an elementary school as an English teacher now, but she's told us that typically her first two classes of the day, they have to go down to the basement. It's almost like clockwork, so she doesn't even get to teach during that time period. The girls are back in school, but they're mostly virtual Um, They're starting to do two days a week at school, but there's a lot of people who even still just keep their kids virtual, even though they're local, because they're afraid to send their children away from them during this time period where something could happen. That was one thing too, that they had noted was almost all of their friends are gone from at home. Everybody's left and gone somewhere else. So in the school environment, there's very few kids in their schooling. Uh, it was the same for the mother right before she left where the school was telling her, we're going to cut back on your hours because we really don't have that many kids uh, in the school for you to be able to teach. So it is a different environment for them. They really try to focus on the good and so that we're not concerned about them when we talk. Um, so they're not really focusing on the bad stuff. And we were just, we tried not to focus on the bad stuff when they were here but. Was a lot of crying sessions, you know, talking about a lot of the stuff that happened at home, um, and especially for the mom, she was really guarded about talking a lot of the the bad stuff. It, she really didn't want to bring it up or, or remember it.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time, Justin. Um, is there anything else you wanted to mention, or you think is important for our listeners to to hear and understand about about your experience and about the experience of your guests?
0: You know, I would say that. It's just important for everyone to continue supporting uh, the Ukrainians. That's the overarching thing. Um, You know, this family, they had worked very hard. They did not come from any sort of wealth or money. And her husband and her had had saved and worked really hard to the point where they owned their own flat. They purchased a second flat as an investment property for uh, um, next to a college that they wanted their children to go to and so they rented it out as income and when university would come around the girls could have lived there um, that was bombed It is gone um, that entire investment that they saved for is gone their roadmap in life is gone their plans that they had is gone their savings is gone it took all of their savings to come here to america and so that's a really horrible thing and so people really need to understand that people's lives are being destroyed and they need our support. Ukraine the Latest
1: is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gear, And the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.